My name is Anda Gunska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Our guest today is Peter Eliopoulos, who, for over 12 years was the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for M&T Bank. Today, he remains a senior advisor there. This episode was recorded in February of 2020, before the world entered lockdown. But we wanted to resurrect it for you because of the teachings about brand and marketing that remain relevant, proving their value even in the face of a completely changed world. Peter's a scientific and specific eye for approaching a marketing mix, and it really shines in his philosophy of quote-unquote, deploring easy answers. With Onda, he talks about the nuances of marketing across industries and business cycles, how he built his content team from scratch over 10 years, and a chart he dubs the brand hierarchy of needs. Here's our conversation with Peter Eliopoulos. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pros and Content. I'm really excited to be here today with uh, the most interesting man I have met to date. He is not only fashionable, but very opinionated about content. Welcome, Peter. Hi, how are how you? How are you? Nice to see you. Very nice to have you on the podcast. Thanks. I love, I love your place. This Thank is an you. exciting beehive of activity here and very cool too yes we try to make it um, a cool space to walk into we really we care a lot about brand and that i think (laughs) hopefully shines through in everything that we do from the podcast to the office to everything else i walked in i I didn't i didn't know i said this is you have to be pretty cool to be able to be in this place well we have a pink neon so it's it's you know Love it. <laughs> what else can I say? <laughs> okay. Well, it's good to have you on. Um, you. We got super excited and got really far down a lot of different interesting topics when mm-hmm. we were on our prep call, yep. including the fact that you are of Greek descent as per your last name. That's we right. started going into all the similarities between my culture, the Romanian culture and your culture, the Greek culture. <laughs> And I think ultimately we landed on the fact that our respective cultures make us very colorful storytellers. Um, we hope. So <laughs> Please, we I hope. wanted I wanted to start off just by hearing a little bit about your background. Tell us how what was your path to CMO? And obviously, you most recently were the CMO of MTNT Bank. I would love to hear a little bit of of how that came to be. Great. And just for us, this you know there was parts of this that you know may be of more interest to your listeners than others. But um, <clears throat> I would say a non traditional route to the seat is how I describe it. And you know, when you're a CMO and a senior leader in an organization or a CMCO, which is technically what it is, it's marketing and communications, which includes all of the owned and earned media assets as well, and not just for one brand, but two, um, that had some lead up to it. But I would say from the back of the house forward is how I would describe it. So not from a big brand agency, not doing big creative storytelling, being close to it at times in my career, but I spent a lot of time on the sales side, and I was a you know a pretty good revenue generator at the time at Citigroup when I came out of uh, college, and I did one of their management training programs. I went on to be a management consultant in Australia and in, in England and all over the place for a period of time, learning about a lot of brands that I came to love and know. 
one of which was um, National Geographic, and you're going to hear me refer to that later. It's one of the one of the best experiences I think I have had in my and in one, my career. An amazing storyteller. Yeah. Oh my lord, and visual and also factual in a way that you know, from little children all the way to whatever. Totally. And. Not to immediately diverge, but one gets introduced to brands at a very young age. And you talk about family. You know, my, my grandmother, who was a teacher and fluent in four languages, had me reading the, the younger book, the, the World Magazine version of Geographic from a very young age. So mm. I was always sort of amazed and in awe of it. And, uh, and I think those things happen at, you know, various flashbulb points in your, in your life. But anyway, so consulting and then uh, a period of time doing an internet startup, which I will politely refer to as an, a first-generation social uh, network. <laughs> I'll call it a first-gen social network. In circa How long did you, did you do that for? About two years, and we raised about three million bucks. And wow. uh, I ended up being CEO unwillingly of it as to preside over its sale. And frankly, it's uh, unraveling because we had some interesting technology that people wanted. Frankly, gamers wanted it more than mm. what we in originally intended it to be a networked it's called Arena Networks, and it was intended to be a networked community for banks that didn't have banks and financial institutions that didn't have the money or the ego to say, like, I'm not going to mention the banks, but I say larger institutions that wanted to own and control everything. And the idea would be very similar to a, a shared services network like the the old ATM networks, where they would have many banks were in a coalition with each other, and you could get your money wherever. And they might charge you 50 cents, 75, or nothing, depending on what kind of a client. They, they... So you have a lot of empathy for me is what I'm hearing. I do. As a, <laughs> as a startup, I have to tell you, I so do. And wasn't one of the reasons, honestly, I, this, is, this is absolutely from the heart. This is one of the reasons I said yes, is that I have sat on this other side of trying to build something and knowing how hard it is. doesn't yep. matter what money you have. Yep. And um, I think it's, it's really tough because you get 30 clients and they're all willing to pay something to do something. And inevitably, seats change in organizations. We'll get to that in content later. But uh, my seat then went from there back into corporate America. I was the head of, um, we'll call it marketing for the North American retail presence of Citigroup, uh, mm -hmm. Citibank. Mm -hmm. And that included everything from your good old-fashioned checking accounts. They were metropolitan-based. It was a lovely experience. The woman who ran the brand and the business was a uh, somebody I'm still a big fan of. And... Um, Somewhere along the line, I met this gentleman named Bob Wilmers, and uh, we'll talk about Wilmers too if you're interested, but Wilmers, is he's been known as the Dean of American Banking. He said to me, he looked at my business card when we met socially and said, what the heck does the head of marketing and strategy even do? And <laughs> that began the beginning of a beautiful relationship, which was very fun and very, at times, I would say, uh, uh, joking, a little combative, but always wonderful. And uh, Bob had me at M&T, and then we bought Wilmington Trust. So I would say three times a CMO, um, once in a tiny startup, once in a massive company, and once in a midsize, and 13 years in the seat would tell you I, it was just right. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful brand. People in Buffalo, Baltimore, you see our name on a stadium, the M&T Bank Stadium. It's a wonderful um, organization and uh, it, not the normal route to it. Mm. these other ways. So I hope that's answering yeah, at least part of it. Yeah, fascinating journey. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, I know this is one of the first questions we talked about, but tell us a bit about how you have thought about the balance between upper and lower funnel, uh, between performance and brand. And tell us how much you hate this question, because I'm sure you do, <laughs> because I'm sure it's one of the hard ones. Um, but yeah, I'm very curious to hear what you're going to you say. You actually make it, you're very respectful and you're very, uh, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm no, trying it's, to give it's... context to apologize for it, but it's an important one. No, I think we, at least it begs, uh, it, it introduces an important conversation. It does. And it's a, it'll be a chunk of what we talk about. 
I think, you know, one of the things I say to financial services folks, unlike a JetBlue or a Four Seasons or a Virgin Atlantic or, you know, even a, a candy company, a luxury goods company, a Tiffany, um, I think that financial institutions have to remember that they are, you know, of, of limited interest at various points of time in people's personal journeys. Very important. I think that Bob Wilmers used to say that American commerce is fueled and brought along by banks, which are both lend to and take deposits from, um, you know, Americans and businesses. But I think that the reality is that we sometimes think uh, a lot of ourselves. And I think that that requires us to take a step back and say, what exactly is the question I'm trying to answer here? Um, and I think that brand, when I arrived at M&T, was non-existent is the short answer. There was no room for it. The one exception would be, and it was funny, they began to call it the Iliopolis rule. Um, I, uh, we did acquisitions, and we were on a furious pace of acquiring smaller banks. And one of the things, again, you'll hear me refer to Mr. Wilmers or Bob. Bob used to say that banks don't actually get bought. You can't hostily take over a bank for the most part. They, they have people that decide that they want to be sold. Right. And um, at the time that you're buying a bank in a particular area of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, of the wood, neck of the woods, I would say... At the time that you're, you know, acquiring a bank or merging with a bank, probably the better word to say, you have to remember that a lot of these things are different from the global brands and that they have to worry about local regulators, mm -hmm. shareholders, and so forth. And at those moments, there would be a, what they would call an introductory, why, why everything's going to be okay campaign. And we would do yeah, wonderful work. The other exception might be during football season. You'd see brand and community featured heavily where – you know, members of the Baltimore Ravens and M&T bankers would, for instance, get together and do a Habitat for Humanity build, and there wouldn't be any products or anything sold at all. It would be about working together to make it a better place. We had a period of time, we used to say, when Buffalo succeeds, we all succeed. And I think that's true for some of these mid-sized and smaller, um, smaller cities in the United States that haven't, frankly, been under uh, enormous amount of uh, economic pressure. So, I mean, the question of what's the optimal blend, you know, I would have my what I'd call theoretical answer, which should be two-thirds, one-third. You know, we have a third in the mixture that would be brand in any given moment in time, and two-thirds would be focused on performance-based marketing. But those rules are only meant to be markers in a sand so that you can then steer around them and decide what's correct. At a time of an acquisition, obviously much higher. At other times when you're thinking to yourself, mm -hmm. are we going to make our goals for the year? You know, your product organizations and others are very intent on wanting to, you know, gin up the sales machine. Um, I still think that there should always be some mixture. And I've sort of settled in, depending on where you are in a business cycle and depending on what business it is, that it should be, and I actually have a revenue percentage that I actually assign to these things too, is that you should try to aim for the two-thirds, one-third rule, knowing you'll never really get there. Mm. But if you got to 90-10, you should feel okay. I mean, 90-10 is not bad in a world that, you know, is trying to sell things. 90 performance, 10 brand? Yes, I would say. Now, again, this is within this is within our neck of the woods. Different category, different product, different point, you know, entry into a market. I would flip those. And at the time we were going into a new market, like when we were here coming into the, we had acquired a company called Hudson City. And we did something on the order, oh, I'm not going to say exactly, but it was sort of, it was several millions of dollars of measured media. And it was almost all brand. It was mm -hmm. almost all about, you know, and it, it really skewed the tables the other direction. So the first thing I think that we have to keep in mind is that the answer depends, even though that's a terrible answer, I guess. And you have to understand the context and what you're trying to achieve. As a general rule, I think we tend to over-product market as a general rule. And I, and I deplore it when it gets kind of 
crazy. Like, you know, when it's like there are 16 things that everyone has to know about my credit card. They're not even going to remember four. So yep. the, that's something that, you know, that feels like when a new product manager gets into the seat, every new product manager has to, in a sense, be reeducated into kind of what's possible. I hope that gets at what you're driving Totally. I, I think what's interesting is you you are a lot more exact and scientific than most that I pose this question to, which is great. Um, the other thing that it makes me think about is, is there is there really a binary switch between the two? Uh, can we maybe think about, I, I'm starting to get obsessed with this mid-funnel idea, mm -hmm. and I'm just hearing a lot of people think about it and talk about it. I think most marketers that I talk to feel like they have some level of pain um, in not being able to define exactly what metrics would relate to the mid-funnel, but also not being able to really communicate to a financial organization why those metrics matter. So usually there's like this binary switch where it's 100% brand and then it's 100% performance and it's 100% brand and it's 100% performance. Right. As opposed to... More nuance. This is a bigger, you know, it, it's, it's a two-year horizon. Mm -hmm. This is how we're going to think of the mix of all these different instruments and there will be a mid-funnel and here's how we're going to instrument and here's how, what we expect to see. And I'm just curious, have you seen this kind of you know, ADD uh, approach to marketing. Yeah. Have you managed, because you had such a long tenure, were you able to to maybe create, you know, multi-year plans that in, that included brand and performance? That's a, that's a really good question. And it's, I would say the answer was increasingly yes. Yeah. So there's a gentleman now who is the, the CFO of M&T, but was my um, sort of, for a period of time, I reported directly to him. And um, we had a conversation that went something like this was, you know, as much as people like football and as much as they're happy to take a $100 gift when they open up a new account or try XYZ product, I'm feeling like, you know, this is limited utility and diminishing returns. I'm like, yeah. Then he goes, so what else you got? And I go, <laughs> well, um, I cannot have that conversation without a conversation about money. So we had a conversation about brand and me and the guy who's now the CFO. It's always great when a person who's very financially oriented. Yeah. And again, I'm, I should make it clear to your listeners, I'm speaking from my own opinions, not the opinions of M&T Bank totally, Corporation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my view of the world. But we had a wonderful conversation on a weekend, which sort of says, like, there's what you think you really need and then what we will actually accept. And, you know, said another way, one of the folks that used to work for me um, would say things like, we have as much brand as the budget will allow, or we, we decide the budget and then we decide the strategy. I think both of, I think the... Those are, are a bit extreme views. I tend not to subscribe to that. My view is you need about two and a half to three years to see impact sustainably, not in, out, on, off. And we did do that. We actually saw a 15-point move in some of our biggest markets. Now, in Buffalo, it's a little tricky because the headquarters have been in Buffalo. The company's 163 or four years old now, and it's been around for a long time. So there's many ways that that brand is communicated. Um, but I think the, the other thing we have to be cautious of is not to always associate brand with advertising. And I think that's hmm. that. That I think is a mistake that we all we slip into that. Mm -hmm, you know, how many mm -hmm. advertise? Oh, how many well, for television? Well, what am I going to do for direct media, direct to consumer? And what's my social budget going to be? What about events? Mm -hmm. All of those things combined and taken together sustainably over long periods of time are what impact and move your and inch your brand along. Now. I'll tell you a startup, it's probably a different story because obviously you're in a hurry. You've got to show some traction. You've got to have clients. You've got to have a list to show people that this is what's going on. You have a burn rate you're managing along the way, right? So I think it's different, and that's why I, I deplore easy answers to things. I think that has to be a little thoughtful. 
with that all having been said, if you think about this mid-funnel and you, you were right on top of it, I think that we really should conceptualize there's a top of the house on brand which says, who are you and why should I care? There's the bottom part of this, which is, what do you got? Let me try it. And there's that middle part, which I think a lot of the divisions have to do, which say, what makes your, plug in the word, credit card so special? Well, mm -hmm. did you know that we give as many points as a Capital One? Yeah, but you're not actually going to say that, right? You have to come up with some way that's both art and science that's going to attack that middle part that you're referring to, the mid-funnel. I think increasingly we have way better tools than we did in 7, 8, 9 after the financial crisis. Yep. And I think we also forget, um, not to go on too long with this part of it, but to say um, earned media is important as well. I mean, what people are saying about you in the press and what people are thinking about you is governed by other thought leaders who comment or mention you. And, you know, that can, that if it's authentic, that can be very helpful as well to your brand and your measurements. Just by way of comment, there's a thing called the Brand Finance 500, and uh, Mr. Wilmers used to always hand me a copy of it and said, what is this, and why should I even care? And I'd say, well, I, I don't know what it is, Bob, but it's a pretty complicated set of financial metrics, but this would have you believe that something on the order of 10 or 11% of the worth of this company is based upon something that we would call brand. But I think that's a lot tied up with you. It's a lot tied up with the fact that Warren Buffett is a big owner in the company and has been for a long time. There's a lot of things that go into that. Nevertheless, people are happy when they see you moving up those rank, those gain tables. And you know, when I joined the when I joined the organization, it was probably in the one seventies or high one sixties. And when I left, it was sort of high one twenties or one thirties. And in Baltimore, I think one year we edged T Row Price, and people were like, <laughs> that's got to be a mistake. Like, what is that? <laughs> what happened there? And I think it's it's a that's why I'm saying these things are very nuanced. They're not easy. The middle part of the funnel, though, you have to think about this sort of notion of. Um, strategic brand that is telling some differentiation story about the thing that is that you want to bring or sell or share. And by the way, it's it's different for a symphony orchestra. It's different for Lincoln Center or the Shed, who we're you know we're the official bank of the Shed. The story we're telling about the Shed and our partnership in culture is a very different sale, right? The Shed isn't with us so that we can get them to sell more tickets to next year's Verdi Requiem. That's not what we're doing there. Mm. We're talking about the single most important cultural phenomenon in Manhattan since basically Lincoln Center, mm. all right? It's a different sale that you're trying to make as opposed to, I need to sell this many units of right. soda or hotel rooms or you know, airline seats. Is that getting kind of around totally. to what, what, you, yeah. what you're you know, looking to address? Yeah, and, and to get even more specific a little bit, yeah, because please. you know we are talking about content at the end of the day, my next question is is really around where do you think content sits as a strategic marketing instrument? Is it more of a brand instrument? Is it more of a performance instrument? Is it a mid-funnel instrument? Is it across the board? How have you thought about utilizing content across that entire, let's let's call it funnel or journey or whatever you want to call it? Okay. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Now, I'm not going to um, uh, bore you with all this and turn it into a tutorial or a class, but we actually have a a brand pyramid and a, and, a, and a content pyramid that we have that goes with our brand pyramid. And if you're okay with it, I was going to explain a little bit of how we think about it. Sure. If that's cool Let's with you. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. So to, to gain credibility, I think the content provider, you have to kind of start with a some amount of humility, all right? A, a financial institution is not out telling these fantastic stories as, you know, um, a mountain climbing gear company, which is, you know, can have pictures on the side of cliffs and people doing these fantastic, awesome things. It's it's different. It's an enabling. It's an enabler to commerce. It's a helper. It's an advisor, often trusted advisor. If you and it, you know, it was a time that Mr. Wilmers would say, 
you know, you had your banker, you had your lawyer, and you had your and you have your accountant. These were your trusted advisors. I think that is often true for this kind of a category, where you know, whether it's your financial advisor, whether your commercial banker, what have you, the content has to be supportive of what it is you're trying to help them with. The truth is, anybody can go and find out the lowest price for a loan today, or find a cheap credit card by just you know, you just go and say, you know. I think there's a website called, you know, buildabetterbank.com or something like that, or what's the who's paying the highest interest rate on a CD these days? And, you know, frankly, there's a customers for that. There, there are probably 20% of the money that we see flowing through at any given point in time could be defined as money that moves, right? As opposed to money that stays and has been there for a long time. I think that the content is increasingly going to have to be value added. The stories that we tell around that content, they're not in banking and in financial services, they're not just to amuse and indulge, but they have to have some, you know, um, visual and other kinds of interest around them. I would say certainly that's either solving a problem. When we think about brand, we sort of have this this hierarchy I'll describe. Maybe it's of interest. So at the very top, you have the community-centered content that we talk about that empowers, it entertains, creates some visceral emotional connection to somebody. You've, you, you see the big brands, Coca-Cola, you see GM doing it all the time. Um, it, it happens in a way that is often led by advertising. Um, we do it often with partners like the Ravens or the Bills or the Jets or whomever, um, sometimes with cultural partners. But brands doing it right, you think of Starbucks, you think of Red Bull, you might think of American Express, I think would be a brand that's doing that right. You might you might think of Whole Foods, Anthropology, Anthropology I think I'm pronouncing that right, Dove, the soap company, you might think of, is telling stories at a very kind of high level. It says, again, answering the question of content that's giving without taking. It's just, who are you? Just introduce, let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. At the other end, to sort of parallel the earlier part of our conversation, Anda, I was going to say, and, and please jump in if there was a way we want to get specific on this, is this essential content. Now, in a bank, what that means is, can I see the rate calculator? Can I see a list of what's the difference between the Ravens checking account versus the what we call green flag checking? You know, yep. We have this phrase, raise the green flag. That's the stuff that you would expect. Hours of service, where is the direct deposit? Um, you know, What do I need to do to change my name on some accounts? It's all very instructional. Um, think of it, if you were in a physical space, it's almost like your directional signage. You know, Like, where is the, how do I, where shall I go? And I think that the goal there is intuitive visitor experience is going to reinforce an exceptional customer experience. The goal of that kind of content is to say, like, we've got you and we can help you. Is there anything you need? In Ritz-Carlton terms, it would be, Anda, you, are you, you seem to be looking for something. Can I walk you to the Ritz-Carlton, I think, does it amazingly well and has for years. And, um, and I, I think that there's a lot to be said about brands that have figured that out and can live behaviorally. But, you know... At the end of the day, this essential part of it is behavioral. It's not just the directional signage. It's just when you come in, did someone look at you, come around from the counter and say, hello, um, you, can I help you? Can I introduce you to somebody? Is there something I can do for you? Rather than what happens often when you're in, what happens when you're in a bank. Somebody's sitting behind a countertop mm -hmm. hoping that you won't talk to them. And, you know, and they might, if, they, if you look very confused in front of the ATM or something with your card, say like they might yell or call over to you. I think banks and I would say financial institutions that are trying to bring higher value are going to have to get way better. And, and there's a lot to do on this lower part of it. And I think mm. it's easy to get obsessed with that. So again, top of the funnel, who are you? Why should I care? Please give, do not take. And I would say that you have examples of that beyond banks, you know, that there are places, you know, the easy to find mortgage um, rate calculators we talked about and so forth. It's that middle part, I think, again, back to the middle, which is it's the conundrum. So the helper and value-added content. If you're miracle Grow, 
And you know that, the, you know, I, have, I work with a fellow who has really spent a lot of time at the company Miracle Grow um, before he came to the bank and was always about people who are really gardeners as opposed to those who want to appear as gardeners. So customer intelligence and understanding insights about, you know, those who are would use the Miracle Grow Shake and Feed product. That would be someone like Peter, who kind of likes the idea of doing a little something in the garden for my roses and my, you know, rhododendrons and things like this. And then there's the real garden. No, no, I want to mix the potion. I want to see the hose fill up the canister. And then I'm going to personally, and I'm going to dig the places where I'm going to place the pellets and so forth. That's a different experience. I think the, go the goal here is to guide customers in this middle section through some kind of a path to the right thing, the right answer that they're looking for. You call them tips or tools or resources. And, and some of it is just a matter of like, can you explain it easier and faster to me? We used to do it always with like, yeah, click here and there's an explanation of how to fill out the whatever. I think that brands have become really much better at doing this like today, like how do I get my order faster? Ones that think about, I think about Scott's, I think about Home Depot, I think of USAA, where military people deployed all over the world. And there isn't a branch network in financial services with, you know, with some due respect to the competition somewhere in the planet. I think Domino's Pizza used to, although they seem like they've lost their way a little bit now. Um, Google, I mean, and HubSpot, I guess, would be two others that come to mind. So let me summarize. I want to make sure that I understand what you said. So so there's you're basically saying that there's brands that are good at different stages of content. So when you when we think about where content sits within the performance to brand or brand to performance mm -hmm. spectrum, there's a lot of brands that are doing great at the brand level where they're creating content that's giving and not taking. Essentially, mm -hmm. they're just trying to create value um and maybe a positive feeling for the customer. Mm-hmm. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the much more transactional, uh, pragmatically driven content that is about products and, and um, acquisition. Experience. And in the middle, you have a narrower set of brands that um, are essentially doing a better job of qualifying those people that have been engaged with the brand contact and taking them down to the performance one. Is that? I think that's right. I think that's right. If I can, I build on that. Yeah. So um, there's those of this may seem a little too academic, but there is this thing called Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Summarized very quickly, it's basically if you don't have food, water, yeah. and shelter, you're not going to have time for enlightenment, right? Yes. So if you think about this parallel, is that if you're not taking care of your client's most basic needs, like where's the direct deposit for the business and the like, um, the essential needs. How do I enroll? What do I do? Um, it's a little hard for them to be open-minded to these big, wonderful things you do in the community or other but stuff But can like I that. counter that by Please. saying that maybe at the uh, bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is to be seen and to not be treated like a transaction, like you are as a consumer across the board? There's so many... It's so it's so commoditized to treat someone like another credit card sign-up. Yeah. And maybe because of the way we're being treated by a lot of the brands out there, maybe our basic need is to be seen as humans first and foremost and then be taking on a journey towards a transaction. See, I, I actually agree with that. And maybe so maybe that's where the, the academic example doesn't work as well because really you start with the, you know, sort of the top down, who are you and why should I care? Right. Are you even in my consideration space? What makes you kind of something that's worth listening to? Oh, we're in your community and there are things that we might offer you that either a huge brand or one that you don't know at all could offer you. But I think that's right. I think increasingly, particularly, you know, it's always fashionable to talk about things like, you know, what millennials this and boomers that and Gen Xers the third thing and Zed the fourth thing. I think that, you know, 80 million strong millennials and then and then the Gen Z even bigger 
these are these are very large swaths of a population that are hard to generalize about in in particular but there's a there's a growing sense of intimacy that has to be at least recognized and i think that content allows you to do some of that now to be sure if you're talking about something that's a long long lead purchase and you're talking about doing something with a trust and a state and you want to educate yourself about philanthropy that to me is I don't know where you would put that. I don't know how you think of that. I might, I might think of that as middle-ish. It's value-added. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, well, how should I think about philanthropy and what I want to give or what I want to leave for my children and what I might want to offer to my favorite institutions? Um, I think I think, I think um, that on the best days, everyone would like to do this. I don't think brands wake up in the morning thinking like, how can I alienate the most number of people possible <laughs> and just get them in here, sign them up and get them out? I mean, yeah. I'm sure there are some still to do that. But I think most people are now around this idea that I'm going to have to have something which people call some me- level of connectivity and relationship with clients. The problem is, as things get bigger, let's look at JetBlue. Originally, if I may, can I use JetBlue as an example and get out of banking for a second? So when I first, I was one of the early flyers in JetBlue. I knew Dave Barger, who was the founder of the airline. I used to get personal holiday cards from him and the executive staff and notes, notices inviting me to the Tribeca Film Festival and to this, that, and the third thing. Now you hear about, you know, will JetBlue remain independent or is it going to get bought by United? And now it's gotten so popular that it priced up. And a lot of the things, I don't mean the seats or the crispy snacks. I'm not talking about that. And in fact, I spoke to their pilots at one point about brand and what the brand meant. Pilots at one point felt like they had been forgotten. Mm. Said, do you realize that you'd put your life in the hands of a man or a woman, whether they were military or not, who basically for the next one to eight, 10, 12 hours is going to fly you someplace. And that's the most important thing in the brand. And I think that, you know, it's very, we, we always talk about brand like it's an external client thing. What about the people who work for the brand? You have to think of them as your brand ambassadors. Are they proud to work for the company? Do they bring forward something that would actually allow them to connect? Mm-hmm. Or if they're treated a certain way, then you don't have a hope of treating the client any differently if you're not treating your own people very well. So brand begins in the home, so to speak, or inside and moves out. And I think that you, you're absolutely correct to point out. I think that you, know, you, can't, you can't possibly think that just answering the basics is enough. It's not. You have to be able to do it, but it's not enough. So tell us a little bit about how you thought about architecting this function inside of MTB. It sounds like you were an early adopter. I, I met your uh, head of content the other day, and she's been there for quite a while. Um, it's, taken a, it's taken a while. <laughs> well, I know, but you know, I, I would say that a lot of other financial institutions aren't aren't there yet. They don't have a head of content. A lot of them do, and that's great. But tell us a bit about when that journey started for you, and when when did you realize that content was going to be a function? Um, did you centralize it from the get-go or was it something that started off decentralized and is still c- trying to get centralized? Oh, wow. A couple of questions in there to work yeah. with, if yeah. I may. Uh, no, it's all good. It's actually fine. And you tell me if this is getting at it. So I'm thinking back to that we had a very important marketing meeting and it was around October of 2014. And it was actually down here in the Terrytown area, right at around the time that we were thinking of doing that transaction I told you about in New Jersey when people were like, what's this bank from Buffalo that's buying mm-hmm. a bank in New Jersey? And um, the biggest thing was we're never going to be able to play on measured media alone. We're never going to be able to make that kind of impact. It's going to be a drop in the water, even if for eight or 12 or 15 or even, let's exaggerate it, I think we did it for maybe six months, you cannot keep up that pace of advertising. Plus, there were new tools available. We had a summit meeting. It was me and my direct reports and a few other um, guests. And we talked about, you know, what what is it? And one of the people who will, I'm not going to name, I'm going to... I'll just call him Mikhail. There was a guy, Mikhail, in the group who was a little grumpy. 
And Mikhail would often sort of say things like, geez, um, we really should not be, we should stay away from all this stuff because we should only talk about the facts. We should only respond when there's a question. It should always be fact-based and let's keep the emotion out of it if at all possible. And usually that's because, you know, if you're worried about investors or other things, sometimes things can, you know, people have questions of all kinds. When we got into a conversation about what's a content strategist, what's a content writer, and what's a content administrator, the next thought was like, oh, my God, this sounds like a lot of people. This is going to be a big ask on the company. Mm -hmm. You know what's going to happen. We're going to have to self-fund it out of something. The advertising guys are going to be like, not from my budget, you know. And it becomes a very – the first step is getting it straight with your own team. So the short answer was um, when I arrived at M&T, my mission was to rebuild what was essentially a product function that had marketing – sort of things dangling off of it in all the different lines of business. So we did what was a very big centralization over many years, rebuilt a central team that worked in partnership with those lines of business. So there were people still in the lines of business. And like anything, it's a hybrid model. It's a federated model. You know, you, you can't be, you cannot be doing everything centrally. It's just not nimble enough to do that. Content though, which was so new, had to begin that way. And it was basically a few fellow travelers thinking about what was so interesting and what is this? And, and frankly, you know, full disclosure, you know, I probably was more with Mikhail on the, on the grumpy side of the equation going like, we're not a media company and we're not a publisher. People are not going to care what we have to say. And there's 50,000 versions of the truth telling you what to think about when you buy a new mortgage, what to think about when you compare credit cards. Even then, there was ways to compare. Of course there were, right? Let alone what should I do with my investments and all this kind of thing. So I think that it began as a group of people talking about it, developing a theme and over the course of many years, people who said, I'm, I'm interested in that, so I'll volunteer to do that while I'm doing something else. The person you met was one of those people mm-hmm. who basically stuck with the long mm-hmm. journey. And then we began to do a combination of trying to each year build it up a little bit, say maybe we can get one person in the budget for this this year. I think it's now maybe about, I don't remember what she told me exactly. It might be six and then some outside help as well. But these things take a long time. And you know, companies and people, for that matter, aren't always that patient. Yep. Want, they want to see it now. Like, why don't we have, well, it's so obvious, content's so important. We've got to do this. We've got to, if you're going to do it, it's worth doing right. All right, well, it's hard to argue. It's, yes, I agree. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. I agree. Having said that, you can't do it all at once. So we have to find ways to learn our way into it. And I think that content marketing is information, expertise, and thought leadership. And I think there were people in the businesses who wanted to get that story out. So there were people who knew something very specific about, let's say, philanthropy. Yep. Let's take philanthropy as an example. And they, and they were pretty good. They were, they were known as experts in this. So, they, so that you start with the content you have and you sort of curate and cultivate, to use the kind of the cultivation metaphor, around that. And then, you know, people go like, oh, they're, you know, they're doing something interesting over there with the philanthropy people. I wonder if that would work over here in business banking. Well, no, business banking people want hot tips. What are the 10 things I should think about when I'm starting a new business? All right, well, maybe we should give them some hot tips and maybe we should have you know, maybe Mikhail should do a video where he explains the t- the tips. I don't know. And maybe if he seems grumpy, maybe they'll take it more seriously because they're like, this guy isn't just a, you know, a comedian or something. So I think learning your way into it and, it and it and it has been a shared set of responsibilities. I also think it's important to remember that this works with other forms, other parts of the, the marketing mix, right? Content isn't like a thing unto itself on its own. I'm sure you, you know, you see other people think of it that way too. Um I do think that there was the thoughtful planning that went into it and then the willingness to take that longer road. Not everybody is up for that. So you started off with one person. How long? Two. One or two people? Yeah, something like that. And then now How two, long until you gave them a larger remit and a budget? 
Well, I mean, the budget today is still, you have to understand, and I don't know if this is true of all companies, but there is no, as I don't think you could look at, I could be wrong, maybe it's changed since I've stepped back, but I would say, I don't think there's a line item anywhere that says content budget. I think the people you're talking to, when they do these programs, they realize that there's going to be an event and the event is going to generate some content, some of it visual, like a debate or a panel or a one-on-one discussion or a white paper or an article or, you know, the capital markets forecast that we do. That's, that's like a roadshow. It goes 26 times starting at the Yale Club here in New York and works its way around the country. I think all of those things, people will say like, all right, no, I, okay, I, I think I get what you, but I'm going to get what I want, right? Okay, so I'll give you a sliver of that. So there's lots of slivers and pieces that get amalgamated. And I think that from brand and from, I used to have a sort of a small amount of what I call discretionary budget that I would allow that I could, you know, I could double down or I could co-fund or I could R&D something with. And we're talking about very small amounts of money, by the way. That That is also a, a thought of something I want to sort of land. You know, when you're talking about your brand, it's, you know, National Geographic is where I learned this. It's, if it's untold, it's unsold. Problem is, if people feel like you're selling to them all the time, it's back to what you said. Like, Ugh, okay, enough with that. I, I just want to know who you are and how can you help me or do I even really want you to help me kind of a thing. And I think content has the greatest hope for that, that it could seem like, okay, here's the deal. You know that we work for this company. We have things to sell, but that's not what this is about. This is me trying to help you with, you know, Scott's would say lawn fertilizer and products. We would say your questions about philanthropy or starting a business or how to choose a mortgage or what have you. I don't know if this is exactly what folks would, I mean, look, it's not the most thrilling thing. I guess it's not, the, it's not always thrilling in certain brands. There are other brands that talk about, you know, you look at Richard Branson and the stuff they're doing at Virgin Atlantic. Imagine all the places you can go. Wow, that's, that's fun to think about, where to go on vacation. What, I wonder what Istanbul is like this time of year or what, you know, the island of Mykonos is like this time of year or what have you. And I think for brands like ours, which have these very long consideration for the most part, not the credit card part, but the other pieces, you have to be an educator and a partner to some degree. And like I said, we're not a media company and we're not a publisher. So it's not the same as building. We're not building a National Geographic of finance. That's not what we're doing. Um, and I think people probably, people probably understand that as long as it's not onerous, they're willing to do that fair trade for I'm going to get something or learn something. I'm assuming as, as you were building out this content function that yeah. proving out content or at least measuring it and having transparency around um, its performance was important. Oh, yeah. Is that true? Absolutely. And if so, and so how did you think about starting to do that? You're, you're showing me a, a diagram of sorts. There's a lot of bubbles on it. Yeah, there's a lot of bubbles. And it actually starts with the pyramid, but eventually it kind of, I will think of it's more of a, the people call a this flower? the flower chart. Flower okay, chart. got it. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so how they, did you think about the performance and kind of measuring that and, and demonstrating it? Well, look, I mean, there's all the thing of like in SEO. Wait, 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 wait. Oops, sorry, I pulled yeah, away for no a second. Let me just plug this back in. You can think about places like, you know, how many clicks, how long did they spend, how many downloads did you get for a given piece? And that's the thing that everyone wants to know. Then the second thing is, yeah, but did it lead to a sale? And I think we do that jump. You and I were talking about this the other day. Yep. People do that way too quickly. You have to be willing, like with your brand advertising, to understand you're on a, you're on a longer fuse for that stuff. But if I think about editorial, I think about governance, I think about what what pieces am I going to take from social to, to use in social media? I talk about places where I'm using third-party content or feeds that I might want to. These all were pieces that in you know this beautiful flower, which we wanted it to be, were kind of like they were bolt-ons or add-ons. The the editorial question in a in a in a bank, and banks are generally tend to be very delicate social organisms where there's often a committee for everything, right? 
And so we sort of said, look, there has to be content and you guys, the business folks, should get with us and say, well, what content would you like to have? And usually what it is is when the, the top of the business or the head of the business says, this is important and I'm going to at least nominally sit on your content committee or your editorial board, which I think they have a fancy name for the editorial board. What editorial will we talk about this time during the, what I'll call the international part of the, the corporate trust part of the business? What editorial would be interesting to have for wealth? I think then people feel automatically engaged. They see that and they say like, okay, I'm going to go to the meetings. I'm going to propose topics. I'm going to be okay if the central team says, you know what, that one's been done like 50 times and I'm not sure we can do as good a job at it as something else. But tell me more about topic B. Tell me more about, you know, philanthropy is a big topic. What specific part of philanthropy might we zero in on? So the governance part ended up being like these editorial boards and that was a mechanism to bring people in, I think, to the decision-making process. It wasn't just... The marketing team is off creating content somewhere. God knows what they're doing. Like somebody look in on those people. Make yeah. sure they're not getting too carried away with themselves. And I think at the end of the day, this this other part we don't talk about, which is the user-generated content, people who want to jump in and have a point of view. I'll, I'll give extreme examples. Now, in philanthropy, it's a little harder. It's going to be more like in a roundtable that's recorded and you put it back up online. Someone's going to say, that, that's not been my experience in Florida because they set up these things differently in Florida versus Delaware versus North Dakota. Um, if you're talking about what I'd call user-generated content a la mass market consumer, there was a period of time, this feels too long for my, for my taste, when the Baltimore Ravens actually went to the Super Bowl. And one of our guys who was doing a completely different job in the sponsorship group got with somebody and sort of basically put on our Twitter handle and, and I think on our Facebook page, who's still thinking about last night's game? This is when the Ravens in double overtime beat the Denver Broncos and then were on their way to the Super Bowl. And it was unreal. It was like, this was 2012, I think, or 13, 36,000 replies within, within a week. It was just unreal. Everyone wanted in on that because it was the Ravens. And they said, and the Ravens didn't just play at m and Bank Stadium. The Ravens, the players themselves started saying, we're playing at the bank. Well, so when the Ravens had the game last night at the bank, the local radio personalities started picking up on that. That's a version of user-generated content that probably gets faster to the kind of the metrics. People go like, whoa, okay, that's big. You're not getting that when you're talking about a very narrow, some might say esoteric topic, but it's high value for a smaller group of people. Right. That makes sense. I mean, is that kind of getting, I mean, I, I don't know if it's you yeah. know, heavy yet. I think that this notion of a central um, uh, group who has expertise and then borrows against other parts of the marketing organization. I need help with doing this in social media. I have an, we have a group that does events, that does fantastic, beautiful events at Hulk all kinds of events, you know, with sometimes with CNN guest hosts doing a roundtable and sometimes just a dinner where there's a speaker and then there's an after, you know, party for lack of a better term. I think all of these things qualify. And I think that the center's group, the, 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 the rule at the center is not to do as much content as possible. That's not the goal. The goal is to say, what would be the curated relevant content that would be most impactful for your business? And I find, and I, it seems to me that the team that you're talking about in their consultative work with the other marketers, and with the business lines, I think that's what's earned them the credibility to say, like, okay, all right, I, I can go a little more with this. All right, next year we're going to do this. We're going to make it bigger next year kind of a thing. It's patience, unfortunately. It's not that exciting. I, mm. wish, I wish it was exciting than that. So tell us a little bit, as you've come across a lot of content leaders, I'm sure, in your career, and you've also nurtured and grown some of them yourself, what's some advice that you have for these content leaders, especially within financial institutions, as they as they build their careers and maybe choose this as a career for themselves? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, the first thing is, is this a kind of content that, you know, um, turns you on that you like? Are you interested in it intellectually or otherwise? I mean, do you, do you like it? If somebody says to you like, oh my gosh, I'd rather put hot sticks in my eyes than talk about, you know, another whatever credit card checking campaign or what have you, or, you know, why our mortgages are different than those guys' mortgages or what makes our bank better than that bank. If this isn't your thing, then you should be intellectually honest and say this, I don't really love this that much. It's just, you know, kind of, that's obvious, right? The other part of it, I think, is that you also have to realize that depending when you say develop the career, there's the person that you're talking about who came in with an idea of doing, that, that person was a local person in our Boston office who was doing regional marketing for Boston and wanted and had this desire to do other things and say, well, you know, it's going to involve having to travel more. You're going to have to get to the hubs, which were in Baltimore, Buffalo, and Wilmington, Delaware. All right, I'll do that. I'll, I'm happy with that. And then we're gonna, we try to be reasonable too with family and you know, kind of life work balance and all that. But I think a lot of it has to do with people being willing to lean in themselves and being able to say like, I think we could and not just, I hope someone's gonna do it. I just gave my great idea, but I will help. Um, and that's, you know, you can help your career that way, of course, by willing to, to do stuff, to, to create things. Um, but we're not a media company, not a publisher, as you've heard me say. And so I think it's important to know that if what you really want to be doing is that kind of stuff, we had one fellow who worked with us who found the hospitality industry very, very enticing. Mm. And it came up multiple times. And finally, I was like, look, dude, if you want to do that, you should go do that. That's gonna, you're going to love that. And he and I were texting last night about how do you like it? And he said, it's got a lot of the same issues. It's <laughs> unreal. They don't actually, they want to reuse the same content over and over again. We don't want to kind of create new because it's expensive and we're not sure what the payback is. And, right. you know, this whole middle funnel thing is very confusing to executives. <laughs> we just want to know how many hotel room nights we're going to sell. Yeah, it's hard. Like, you know. But anything worth doing is hard. I think that's probably true too. The the other thing I'll say, and this is gonna, I don't want this to sound like dumping cold water on it, but I think there's always I I met a person I was interviewing and she said to me, Within five years, I'm gonna have your job. This was like the first interview I'd ever done with this person. I said, Strong. Good, good for you. <laughs> Excellent. I said, by the way, did you know what jobs happen before this job that you see this chair, that you're looking at the chair, you're not looking at me. And I said, you know, we had a what I would call a robust discussion about that. <laughs> you know, and I think one of my people referred to as a robust discussion. But I think the, the point is that you have to be able to do other things. Content, I don't know that a lot of people are going to get to the CMO seat just being content specialists. Yeah. I don't yeah. think that's going to happen. That may not be what you meant, though. You're just no, talking it about, is what I meant. Oh, I, you I did. Just, yeah, but I just think that maybe the, being a content specialist. And by the way, banks might be different than media companies. <laughs> right. And I think you make a good point that if you want to be in the business of content and that's it, then go be in the business of content at right. a media company. Yeah. Um, if you want to be in the business of branded content, then you have to embrace the reality that you're going to have to be at the intersection of a lot of disciplines. You, you're going to have to think about performance. You're going to have to think about brand. You're going to sure. have to think about data. Measurement. So yeah. Yeah. ultimately, you have to actually be a renaissance man or woman and just be good at a lot of different things, the engineering and the art at the same time. I'm so glad you said that. I actually gave a talk early in my time at M&T called The Art and Science of, you know, what at the time we called marketing and communications. But I think that's exactly right. This, I think that our hyper-specialization takes us in two directions. And this is a societal thing too. You know, we want this, the very specific thing that I'm looking for and I want to get to it fast, get in, get out. And, you know, whether it's entertainment value, my son is big fan. He consumes a lot of NBA content, I would say right now. And a lot of it is basically 
groups of people opining on the games that happened last week or what happened in the post-Kobe, what's going to happen in the post-Kobe era. And that's all great, you know, that this is, you know, maybe it's making them buy more NBA stuff. Maybe it probably is, jerseys and going to more games and the like. I think in, in um, you know, not, again, not to be, you know, not, not to be a, a sort of a Debbie Downer about it, but I think that there has to be some um, there has to be some recognition that when you do these jobs, it's in a context. I think of them as orchestral. I really do. And and, and this is a this is a metaphor that's important to me because I think we've talked about how orchestral music matters. And I think um, you are a person who's a very good oboe player. And someday you would like to be a conductor. Look, Joanne Falletta, who's the conductor of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, she was a she was a classical guitarist. It's an unusual way to get to conductor, by the way. Mostly the pianist or violin player. Um, but I think a lot of it is what do you want to do and what are you willing to put up with in your career to learn? And are you willing to take a track at running operations for a while or running the direct mail engine, which is just about the product manager needs this many pieces of direct mail and this many chasers of email to follow? Yeah. Are you willing to do or learn about that stuff or do you kind of, ah, it's not that interesting to me. Yep. I think people who like doing content, though, do find ways of expanding their role. You saw this person who's managed to stick with it long enough that we're allowing her and others to to get in more on that. Let me ask you, you know, I'll ask, can I ask you a question? No, I'm yeah. joking. Yes, <laughs> go for it. So here in your company, um, I'm curious, what is it that you're sort of up against as you think about, I mean, you're a content, you know, hopefully one day the content measurement company of the of the planet. And I've read some of your materials and we've had some interesting chats and, and then the conversation we had earlier in the week. But what do you find that you're up against at this stage of your company's life cycle and how does content fit into what you're trying to build here? Hmm. Curious. I find content to be fascinating as a category because everyone is uh, aware of its importance. Yes. Um, the high consideration product companies are yeah. compelled to create it. Yet, um, not everyone has yet managed to organize around it. This mm. is why a lot of the questions I ask um, in every single podcast is, is it centralized? Is it decentralized? Yeah. Where are you on that journey? Um, you said, you know, content is not a budget line item. Uh, definitely very much the case. It's becoming more and more of Correct. a budget line item. Yep. It's becoming more and more of a question mark for CFOs, which makes it become more and more of a line item. Uh, which makes us become more and more of a line item because we are the answer to is this working or not? How could we be making it work better? Right. And so I find it exciting as an entrepreneur because it feels a little bit like the wild, wild west. It's a category <laughs> that hasn't yet um, created itself or defined itself. Yeah. And here we Maybe. are kind of the only ones being a partner to these content leaders and empowering them to have strong answers to these tough questions from the financial team, from right. the CMO. What are you doing with this content? You know, what is, where does it sit between brand and performance? Can you connect it? Is there a mid funnel, right. et cetera? Right. So I find it to be very exciting. That's it's, important. It's, uh, it's something I've become very passionate about. I'm a data nerd. I, I didn't know much about content, but I, it's very hard to measure. It's very hard to measure correctly. It's then hard to figure out where to measure it and make sure you're measuring it holistically across everywhere it lives. Yes. And that makes it a really interesting problem for me. So I love I love doing it. You're, you you have talked about, and I've heard this, this art of storytelling, I think in the data wash that we're all in, I'm going to Wharton um, in a few weeks to sort of take a peek at like things like this machine learning and big data and what does it mean for you. And at the end of the day, this is all wonderful, but at the end of the day, you have to actually have a story that, you know, someone cares about and brand storytelling 
you know, done well, done authentically, I can, can lead you many interesting places and you'll see yeah. the results you want to in those metrics afterwards. If it's only let me find out what's going to drive this metric here, like time on page or number of downloads or, you know, in you know, cost of acquisition, which is a big one we look at, of course, for some of these products. I think it's going to be a tougher, a tougher um, uh, row for folks to hoe as they try to get down. I, I, I think that the other question, you must hear this, I'm sure you do, is I'm totally fine with all this content stuff as long as it's going to replace something else in the budget. Now, we hear that all the time. All you need to do is tell me what I'm going to cut so that I can pay for your magnificent content, whatever mm -hmm. that is. And then you have a bunch of people saying like, well, we don't really need to do the kind of the... I mean, I shared with you some of our, what I'll call high production quality, Joshua Weinstein, who worked with us, uh, he's a Sundance film director and worked with me on several of our, you know, big, beautiful storytelling um, things like The Shed and some of the, some of our client stories and the clients tell the story we don't. It's almost like we're giving them free ad space. What people would say is just take a, a nick out of that. Just do one less, you know, of your big TV things. And the other thing we have to remember too, I think, just as we kind of round it out here is that content isn't just something that you did somewhere else in another medium. You and then you try to jam it into like, okay, I can take the TV commercial; it's beautiful, and I can I can knock it down to six second chunklets or a fifteen second snack or whatever. You know, Google yeah. loves to have their snack bite meal kind of a thing that they they like to talk about. I don't think it's you have to you have to sort of think about the uh, the thing that you're creating in. And to that, I, I didn't mention, and I feel like it would be important to mention. We do a lot of sponsored. Um, you know, um, opinion leader type of videos now where we've taken a step back and said, you know, I'm not sure that the bank, no matter how creative or how intense and how much Laura and everybody want to, is going to tell this story as well as the actual three women who started the soul cycle like competitor in Buffalo and or the woodworking shop totally, or yeah. whatever it is. So we've gotten more um, around, you know, the financial diet, you know, this sort of the financial diet, yeah. I'm sure we've become involved with that and sort of said, here's some topics we're interested in. Let us know when you're going to hit these topics and maybe we can together co-create yeah, co something. Yeah. Co-create something. Exactly. Without trying to take over their show yeah. and, you know, yeah. make sure that they mention, you know, <laughs> I get executives asking me like, but they didn't mention M&T like four yeah. times. Isn't that like a rule? You're supposed yeah. to mention it four times. On our brand ads, the same thing. Like, I didn't see it clear enough who was the owner of the ad. I'm like, <laughs> it's for anyone who wants to Take it in. It's there. Yeah. You don't yeah. need to, sl you know, Slam sledgehammer them. Face, exactly. Yeah. And I think you're going to see us doing more of that sponsored. You know, somebody just told me recently I had something like in excess of 200,000 views of something which was on the financial diet that we had sponsored around a matter that is important to us. You know, and I think what what we do is basically go into those views and think about is it the right audience? Did it move them emotionally? Did it move them engagement wise? Yes. Did they change exactly. their behavior based on it. Yes. Yeah. Um, ultimately, the, all those questions, especially as you spend more money on them, yeah, those questions are going to come up more and more. Luckily, right now, they tend to be seen as fairly cost effective because yeah. the companies, especially if you're dealing with small businesses. But I think that you know the the big the big part of the conversation will be just take it from somewhere else, and I'm totally fine with it. Yeah. The other part is going to be is it working? How do you know? Right. And then when we talk about sentiment, that's a tricky one too, right? And I'm, yeah. I'm hoping you guys are going to have more and more interesting things to there's say. There's no sentiment. perfect answer to it. There's only well, there's no perfect answer to measurement. I think the idea that we can have perfect attribution and perfect measurement is flawed. There's very good proxies, and I think you you just as a marketer should be smart about choosing the partners that you work with who have the right frameworks to then build those proxies with you and make sure that you're right. measuring for the right things. Absolutely. If you're not measuring for the right things, you're not going to get the right things at the end of, uh, right. of a campaign. So, Can you say, like, in your mind, in this world that we're living in today, like, what would be some of the right things that you think about? 
Well, I think it depends what the goal of what the objective, what the objective of the company is, what the objective of the campaign is. Okay. Um, what's hard about content or anything that is not click through measured mm. is that it's just not binary. So you can't just say, oh, the click through was, or it was clicked or not, or viewed or not. Right. You have to get a lot more granular. Um, a lot more sophisticated about what you're measuring, which means that there's more options for what you can measure, which means you have to be very intentional about what you say at the onset you care about. So if you say this is going to be a brand campaign and you know there's a there's a particular company we're talking to now who feels like they need to save their corporate reputation before they can go back into performance. So if the goal is corporate reputation, then measure for corporate reputation and yeah. understand what is really driving that. If the goal is performance, then measure for that. If the goal is mixed, then measure for a mixed goal. Mm. But working with a platform that can do all of it, I think, is important. Thank you for shamelessly plugging me into my own podcast. Well, no, it's more <laughs> of a question. That. I mean, these are it's less of a plug and more of an inquiry. I would say inquiry versus an advocacy. But yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. I'm joking. Both ways, but I think it's but it's an important set of questions because people do want simple and easy answers. Like I want to put a pin in it and call it that and say that's what it is and that's yeah. what I'm looking at. Consideration is an important metric for us, yeah. but right, it's reported consideration. Would right. you consider? Yes, I would. Are you going to actually? You said yes. behavior, right? Yes, well, yes. It's know. a combination. I always said the truth about a human is at the intersection between what they say about themselves and what their behavior says about them. Mm. And and I think when you come when it comes to data collection, the fact that there's a world of research companies which are basically declared data and analytics companies which are behavioral implied data. And the fact that there's a massive wall between the two is such a blind spot for most data collection and mm. measurement companies. So being able to track both what people say and what they do is very, very important. And it's hard. You know, it's funny. It's tough that we got to this at the end of the time. And you know, my little bell tells me there that we've been spending <laughs> some time on this. But I, I will tell you that there's a cost that was implied that we didn't talk about, sort of the below the water line on the iceberg thing. Yeah. And that's that's tricky because as you're going to do these things, you need more specialized form of metrics. And then, you know, yep. let's say you need really good people and the right people we talked about to do the actual storytelling or the actual content generation or curation and yep. strategy. It's also true that you need a parallel part of the universe. So the people who are me you know measuring the direct mail programs aren't necessarily, you know, maybe some of them are, maybe, maybe some, but by and large, they've got a lot to do. You yep. need add resources to say, now I'm going to measure this other whole group of channels and it's right. not all going to be auto measured. Right. So I think, and, and, you know, you do it to your vendors, I hate to use the word, I'm sorry, but, you know, your partners. And yeah, sometimes yeah. it's not your data, it's their data and you kind of like get around to it when you can yeah. because, well, we're so busy planning the next campaign, we don't really have time to look at the last yeah. one. Well, you actually do need to do that to know what didn't, yeah, to didn't know, work. Yeah, to know what to do in the next one. Correct. And I think that that's a cost and that's the cost of both time and money that people don't put in their mental calculus. Maybe they don't want to because it would make them feel fearful to try. Yes. I don't know, but it is certainly something that I've had to think about. Yeah, yeah. I hope this was useful. Yes, thank you so much for, for being a guest, honestly. Uh, it's always so my fascinating pleasure. to hear what you have to say and <laughs> thank you for bringing all these materials and really interesting wisdom nuggets for the audience. I'm sure they'll appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Peter Eliopoulos the former CMO of M&T Bank, where he remains a senior advisor. Peter took a non-traditional route to get to the CMO role, and we're really thankful for all the lessons he brought us from his journey there. As he said in this episode, to gain credibility, you have to start with some amount of humility. That really speaks not only to every aspect of marketing, but to any role in business and even life itself. Thanks again for listening. Please rate and subscribe, and we will see you next time on Pros and Content.